Everyone and welcome to Ladies Night, the official podcast of US Chess Women. I'm your host Jennifer Shahadi and you're listening to the artist Huga of hugamusica.com and that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at US Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our US Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ladies Night. This is Jennifer Shahadi. And today I am so thrilled to bring on a friend to Ladies Night. She's a published poet, a renowned chess coach, and the founder of Over the Chessboard, her coaching organization dedicated to bringing a chess to everyone. Most pertinent to our conversation today, she's the author of multiple books on chess and strategy, including Chess Strategy for Beginners, dropping this month, May 2022 and chess openings for beginners coming in June. She is Jessica Era Martin, and she and I go way back (laughs) when we both used to work for chess in the schools while living in Brooklyn. She's a lifelong reader and learner, and it is so exciting to have someone on this pod who shares my first two loves, chess and words. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining me. Oh my goodness. What a wonderful introduction, Jen. Thank you so much. It's just wonderful to think back on our history and yeah, words, words, literature and chess. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, I've known you for a long time, Jessica, but I have to say that when introducing you for this pod and asking you a couple questions right before the show, I found out what your middle name means, <laughs> Era. I just yeah. always thought it was like this beautiful, like kind of you know, era like Erin or something, but it actually has like a really specific meaning. It does. Yep. And it's, it's funny also because in Spanish it means was. And so that, that also has some humor in it (laughs) having been married, but anyway, um, so yeah, it, it means, uh, it stands for equal rights amendment, um, which is the amendment for equal rights for women, um, which funnily enough, or not super funny, I guess, has never actually passed. Um, And so, yeah, my parents were hippies. We lived in Canada and my, you know, they decided that that would be a great way to, to show uh, feminism throughout (laughs) the next generation. That's really cool because it's not only significant, but it's also a beautiful enough kind of word in both like Mm -hmm. its typography and its sound that some people probably just never know that. And then when they find out like me, I'm like, wow, I need to, <laughs> I need to change because I, I, I don't have a middle name. So, Hey, yeah, you should totally add that. I think that would be, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, it could be, it could be all capitalized or it could just be era or ERA. Um, 
so yeah, I think as a, as a kid, I didn't quite understand the full significance of it. And so I was sort of embarrassed that it wasn't like a normal, typical middle name, but uh, definitely as an adult. Yeah. I, I appreciate the fact that my parents were thoughtful about it. Although it'd be even more awesome if the equal <laughs> rights amendment had passed so that it was like yeah. a celebration of that. I know. Can you believe it? 40 years later, still? Nope. Well, yeah. I mentioned in, you know, your lifelong love of learning and books and literature. Um, when did that all start? Like, was that, you talk about your parents being hippies. Was that something that they instilled in you as well? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we grew up in, in Canada. I grew up in Canada um, and my family was on this sort of, it was sort of like an art commune. So my grandmother would write screenplays and my mom would create um, these paper mache, like huge paper mache heads. And then my dad would, well, he's a ceramicist. And so he would create things for the show. And then my uncle was an architect. And, um, and so everybody had this sort of creative bent, uh, but my grandmother was the writer and she had a huge library. And I remember, you know, sort of poking through these, you know, s- these books when I was really young and just being uh, amazed and astounded at how beautiful it was. And so I think from a very early age, I was enticed by books just sort of as, a, as an object. But then, you know, when I started to read, um, I was, I was just immediately, immediately engrossed and hooked. Do you remember the first book that you fell in love with? Like Ooh. that you read? Cause obviously <laughs> these, art, these art books are, you know, quite interesting as well. I, yeah. My gosh. Well, the, I think the first books that I got into as a very young girl were like the Nancy Drew books, the mystery novels, um, and Black Beauty and, you know, these sorts of of kids books. I think we're in Heidi. I remember <laughs> Anne of green Gables. I think there were quite a few, quite a few kids books. Um, but yeah, I think it's when I discovered that books can make you feel not just imagine another world, but actually have a completely new sensation in your body that like replicates the emotion that the characters are experiencing. I was sort of floored by how powerful that experience was. Yeah. And when did you discover chess at that point? I think probably about the same age. Like I was five years old and I was probably reading around then. And I started playing chess around then as well. Um, and that, <laughs> my chess, when I first started, it was just me. And uh, my dad taught me how to move the pieces, but I was at, I started first grade and there was a chess club and it was me and two other little girls. And we brought, I remember we brought our little teddy bears with us, our stuffed animals to chess club. Um, <laughs> and so there was this little social element, you know, to, to the fact that we, we had our, our little friends with us and we could sit in our coterie together and chit chat. Um, so I, I really, I took to it really quickly and started playing tournaments and stuff quite, quite early on. And what about chess books? Did you also fall in love with those in the same way that you fell in love with regular books? You know, I I don't think so. No, I didn't start really getting into chess books until I was working with you um, at Chess in the Schools or, you know, when I moved to New York uh, and I sort of got much more into teaching. And at that point, um, I wanted to get back. I had taken a huge hiatus throughout high school of just not playing chess. I'm sure we'll, we'll, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but just being a, a teenage 
girl in the chess community was just not super comfortable and whatever. So I took this huge hiatus. And then when I started teaching, I was 19 in New York and I really got interested in methodology and pedagogy. And so I got um, just, and I amassed this (laughs) like library of chess books, I think at that point. And which ones were your favorites for both for teaching and also just for enjoyment? Right. Yeah. And it's, and, and I actually like to teach from the books that I learned from, you know, even if I could have to modify it a little bit, but um, definitely anything by Silman, although I think that's probably higher level stuff, but I, I love the way that he breaks things down. Um, and do you know Kostiev, 40 Lessons for the Club Player? I think Chess in the Schools actually like gave out copies of that one. Anything by Pandolfini, although I have to say the Endgame course was one of my favorites because every single page is a new endgame technique. And I think there's probably no better way of doing endgames than if you just break it down page by page so it's not overwhelming, you know? Um, and he has a book on um, on Fisher, on his tactics. And then I also love the Igor Sukin's chess camp series because it's like super, it's, it's simplistic in its sort of thematic structure, but it's very photocopyable. You know, you can easily set it up on a demo board uh, for an impatient class. There are very few pieces. And for kids books, I love Chandler and Coakley. Um, I mean, they say kids books, but really they're, they're for everybody. And then the game collections, I know there's just a million of them, but the ones that I found that are completely broken, one of one of the things I love about chess books is the fact that they can chunk really high-level information into um, you know, applicable and understandable moments or chapters. And so I like Nunn and Chernev and Wiermontry. They have these sort of starting out understanding chess move by move or logical chess. But one thing that I noticed from all of these books is there are so few, I mean, almost no games by women, chess players, just like none. Like in those last three books, I was just looking through them right before we started talking today. And I love Chernev. Like, I think he writes really well and clearly and understandably. And I love the games. There are zero women represented in his book. And there's only one Polgar game in the Understanding Chess by um, by John Nunn. So it's like, what what happened there? <laughs> But anyway, those are some of my some of my um, favorite books to both learn from and to teach from as well. Unsurprisingly, I couldn't agree with you more, Jessica. That that is a big gap, a gap, a big oversight not to include games by women because mm-hmm. half the population, and we would love more of them to play chess. <laughs> right. So, you know, not not including a single game by them in your book is not the way to go, and that's certainly something that you. Um, have addressed in your recent book. I actually just read it, um, oh, Chess yeah. Strategy for Beginners. Fantastic, beautifully laid out, I must say. Thanks. Your books really are gorgeous. So I think your your grand your grandmother would smile about that for sure. Oh, <laughs> well, thanks for saying so. Yeah. And I I have to say that um some of the inspiration was from your book, Play Like a Girl, because it's the really the only place where I could find all of the um great chess players together, both historically and contemporary at the time as well, you know, from Vera Menchik, like Medina Perea, you know, so great. And so I used a lot of those to teach from when I couldn't find any other examples in books elsewhere. So I used uh, you know, because there's the biography of them, and then there's so many examples of tactics. And so, yeah, in thinking about that, in writing these um, chess books that I've done, but especially you're like you're talking about the strategy book recently. Um, yeah, it occurred to me that there's just so few. First of all, there's so few women 
chess players or serious women chess players and serious women chess authors. Um, and, and then the examples given are, are so infrequently um, displaying, you know, women or people of color or even contemporary players. Like Paul Morphy's great. I love Paul Morphy. You have to teach Paul Morphy, right? But <laughs> there are just so many other players that are, that are underrepresented. And um, I think with the preconceived notions about chess already, like that it's the, a gentleman's game or that it's only for old white men or whatever. I mean, it's played all over the world. Like it's just clearly untrue, but a lot of people think that it's unapproachable or unattainable. And I mean, that's part of why like my business model or whatever is like chess for everyone. Cause I really think it, it's, it can be played by people all over the world, any, any age, any background, whatever. So it's important to show that. And I think I mean, it's maybe a weird example, but I was just thinking about like how Hollywood has recently discovered that, you know, having young girls be heroes on the screen has made an impact in young girls, you know, visibly watching themselves on screen, right? So they have that role model there to look up to. And I think it's the same in any field and, and chess is no different. I totally agree. And I think what it shows, you mentioned Hollywood, I find that really interesting because I think the first line of attack when people try to diversify fields Mm -hmm. is they always just try to look at the optics. Mm -hmm. So they focus on like photography, like pictures, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. you know, stars. They're looking to make sure that things more look more diverse. But then when it's something like in a book, chess games, that kind of stuff, well, that's like, oh, you can get away with like that because it's not as visible unless you're looking for it. And that pisses me off because <laughs> yeah. at the end of the day, if you don't, if you only care about the photographs, you don't care about what's inside, it shows that all you care about is looking like you're making an effort, mm-hmm. not really making an effort. Absolutely. I I think that uh, it really excites me. And I, the reason that kind of clicked with me when you said Hollywood is um, I know that there's also a lot of talk about, you know, diversifying crews, making mm-hmm. sure there's like representation, mm-hmm. not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera. Right. And, uh, you know, in chess, we we do have a lot of female leadership. I mean, the U.S. chess ED mm-hmm. is female. The previous one was our mutual friend, Jean Hoffman. So uh-huh. there's a lot of there's a lot of women, I think, in, who run nonprofits in, mm-hmm. US, in the U.S. who run chess related nonprofits, including yourself. but I think that uh, certainly we can always do more. And you you uh, did a good job of poking some holes there. Um, and you mentioned not only featuring games of women, but also featuring games of people of color. I saw mm-hmm. you had a lot of examples from Maurice Ashley, from Tani Adewumi. Mm-hmm. You, you featured Wesley So quite a lot as well. <laughs> yeah. um, I could definitely tell who some of your favorite players were <laughs> from <Right>. the book. <laughs> <laughs> and and yeah. no, no, who did I miss? Like, who are some of your favorite? Yeah, no, I think, well, I mean, also Justice Williams, I had to um, include some of his games, I think. And I, I, you know what it was also is the last couple of years watching all the games online. Um, it was uh, uh, useful for me because I was able to draw from contemporary games, um, you know, that had just, that had just been played. And so I was able to watch uh, you know, like Goryachkina or, you know, some of the, some of the other, some of the other players, <laughs> contemporary players and, um, and pull from their games to put in, into the book. And, oh, and I had to say also my editor is non-binary. And so they really wanted to be like, not that they wanted to be included, but just the fact that, you know, I brought up the the fact like that there are so few women chess authors. And then they're like, 
and your editor is non-binary. <laughs> so it's like, so I thought that was that was pretty cool too. Like there are just a lot of people behind the scenes that are putting forth a lot of effort. Uh, but yeah, so there's representation in every area that needs to be maybe acknowledged. That's something I, I brought up in Chess Queens that there needs to be more effort to promote LGBTQ plus inclusion in chess because it's not something we really talk about that much. I think that there's definitely needs to be more advocacy there mm-hmm. because maybe there's something about the community that's not comfortable. Of course, it doesn't take that long to figure out why. I mean, a lot of the major events are in, are in countries where they don't have great LGBTQ plus rights records, right? Right. There's a lot of places where it wouldn't be comfortable to be gay and go play in a chess tournament. Absolutely. Yeah, we should have some <laughs> some leadership. Someone should stand up and and make a make a call for the acceptance of that. I really love the the recent book, and then you wrote one a few years ago, "How to Play Chess for Kids: Simple Strategies to Win." So you were telling me about all of these books that you saw and the ones that you liked. When did you decide that you wanted to write a book? I've always wanted to write a book, but like a book of poetry. So that hasn't happened yet, but, um, but, but the thought about writing, I've always been a writer and I was writing all these articles for chess kid and, um, you know, with Danny and, and Mike, and I was just enjoying myself so much, um, using the vocabulary that I would use, you know, to work with children and just a very sort of casual, um, type of discussion, I guess, uh, or interactive, you know, type type of article um, with puzzles and that sort of thing. And from those articles, I got a call like from England. I hadn't really thought about writing a chess book. I got a call from this publishing company, um, Ryland Peters and Small, and they asked me if I would write a chess book, Learn to Play Chess, that was just reprinted last year as Learn to Play Chess. Um, but it's an activity book. So it's a bunch of exercises. So it was very different from what I was anticipating writing. And actually when I, they first called me, I thought it was a total scam. It was like, who are these, who are these like English people calling me, asking me to write a book? I thought it was not even real. Um, but I just, I guess I got lucky. They had seen my articles on chess kid and thought that I had enough material and content and, uh, way, way of, you know, writing that they, that they liked. And so I was able to write a book that was in 2014. Um, and it was 35 activities, um, you know, for kids like ages seven and up, something like that. And, and so I was able to use a lot of the material that I had, um, that I used to teach chess to beginners, um, just activities, which I, it's a different type of book than the other books, which are very, um, didactic, you know, just, they show you how the pieces move and then there's some strategy and some openings and that sort of thing. But this first book was a lot of fun for me because it was just like games that were like either chess variants, like take me, which would show how to identify hanging pieces versus protected pieces or ghost chess, you know, to show the long range pieces, um, capabilities, that sort of thing. Um, and I made up a whole bunch of different games (laughs) and, and that was my introduction to writing chess books was this very different, uh, style of book. And I was just very fortunate to be able to get that, um, that gig and, and then these other three books are with the same publishing company, um, and that they've been more, yeah, strategy, the strategy book, and the, and then how to play chess for kids and the openings book. Well, you know, I think they're fortunate to have you too. You know, you mentioned Soman earlier, and I know he loves literature too. I don't think it's a coincidence that like people. I mean, this might be obvious to some people, but 
you know, it's not a coincidence that the, that such successful chess authors are also really in love with writing because it is economy of language to write mm-hmm. a good chess book. And for somebody like you who reads so much, you get that. Like every word, you know, needs to have purpose. Definitely. I, I love that economy uh, of words. I think you're absolutely right. And and yeah, and thinking about it earlier also that when I was talking about Pandolfini's Endgame book about the chunking aspect of it, and, and Coakley does a really good job of that too. I, I think that's just how, that's the best way to sort of address the largest audience and, and in a way that they can understand is um, by breaking down this hierarchical information because it can get overwhelming very quickly. And I think a lot of people stray away from reading chess books because they're like, this is too much, like too much, too soon, too overwhelming. So if you break it down into little pieces that are understandable and those are, they're foundational, then you can really move quite quite far ahead and and become you know fairly advanced just from reading books I think oh and Pandolfini another one who's a great lover of literature yeah <laughs> yeah yes for sure Jonathan Corvalo was on the on what my other podcast the grid talking uh-huh. about Pandolfini because he once worked at a bookstore called the Incanabulist, I believe okay something that means like uh that's a cinnamon for collecting books and uh <laughs> this was uh Jonathan Corvalo's a million dollar question on who wants to be a millionaire and he got oh, it wrong. <laughs> no way. <laughs> what? <laughs> I can't believe Corval got anything wrong, but that's no, right. I mean, it, it was, it was a little confusing because you, you, when you think of a lover of book, you think like, or, or a collector of books, you think of bibliophile, right? Yeah. So I think that's what threw him off <laughs> that it was like, it was an intentional trick. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And stuff. Bandolfini, Solman, and yourself, you all like have this love of, of books and of chess. So mm-hmm. it, it makes sense to me in a way that uh, you've written these books that are, you know, highly acclaimed for beginners and for intermediate students. Um, so your new, your new books, I would say, it seems like it's kind of like in the advanced beginner category. Would that be accurate? Probably. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I think the idea is that the audience has been familiarized with the game. So they're they're not absolute beginners, but you, you know, that does have how the pieces move at the start of the book and the val- piece value and sort of a little bit of what they're each piece is good at. But then it definitely kind of goes into, into strategies, which I think all strategy, once you're once you're ready for strategy, you're already not really an, an absolute beginner anymore, you know? Yes. Yes. And that's why I think it's a real blurred line between beginner and intermediate. Yeah. Um, especially when we're talking about, you know, we're on ladies' side and we're talking about women. I noticed that when I was running beginners classes for women during the pandemic, I had some issues with running beginner classes because mm. the women who showed up weren't really beginners. They were pretty good. Right. Right. Um, because they were labeling themselves as beginners because ah. women tend to, you know, underrate yeah. their, their skills. Yeah. Right. And so sure. occasionally we would have a pure beginner come in and they'd be like, we had like an assistant who would help the pure beginners because when the pure beginners came in, they were like, what's going on? <laughs> this isn't beginner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that, that terminology can be kind of, kind it's of interesting. You know what? So I run these chess tournaments and I run them specifically for newer players who've done very few chess tournaments, you know, ever. And I have three sections, right? The beginners, intermediate and advanced, and it's all self-selecting. You get to decide or their parents decide what section they belong in. And I kind of give some guidelines, you know, how long you've been playing or how many tournaments you've attended before and that sort of thing. But the <laughs> a lot of kids are are signing up as beginners. They're not signing themselves up, of course. Their parents are. 
but I just realized it's, it's often the moms who are signing up their kids as beginners and then the dads who are sort of maybe overestimating <laughs> their kids' abilities and signing them up as intermediate or advanced. That's really interesting. Have you noticed a gender disparity in like how they pick their kids? Like, are they more likely to put their girls in beginners or is it more just the parent of picking the child of either gender? Well, yeah, no, both. I think, um, oh. yeah, I, I, I think the girls are always in the beginner section, regardless, irrespective of which parent has put them in this section. Um, they're always considered beginners. Sometimes they are, I mean, you know, for sure, but um, sometimes like the girls are in beginners, but they know a lot about chess, but they don't have the, the skills integrated yet. And so sort of intellectually, they're not beginners, but, but when it comes to performance, they are, or they haven't done enough chess tournaments. So it's sort of, that line really is blurred. It's, it's, it's not super clear. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think about. I just, it just occurred to me like who's signing them up as what, you know? Yeah, that is interesting. And yeah, for sure. Sure. Sometimes it could be really good to be the one who is the strongest in the group so that you can like win all your games and gain (laughs) some confidence. But yeah, it is not every time though. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of concerning to hear that there might be a a gender disparity there because it's probably inadvertent. Mm, Um, yeah. So no, I think so. Maybe something that needs to be studied a little bit for sure. Uh, So you told me earlier in the interview, you mentioned that you um, quit chess for some time in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me about why you quit chess? And luckily you were brought back into it um, at the age of 19. Yeah, um, sure. I I think I was very excited about chess all throughout my youth. And then in middle school, there wasn't a chess club. And my mom was instrumental in helping to develop a chess club in middle school. And we just sort of started one at the school. But it it started to, you know, as self-consciousness or awareness starts to dawn on a person around that age and puberty hits and all of those things at the same time, you realize, oh, wow, like I'm, I realized I was, I was the only girl there. And as I got through the end of middle school and started high school, um, all of my female friends, the ones who, you know, we brought our teddy bears to school with us in first grade. Like we had stuck together throughout, I'm talking, you know, Gene Hoffman, (laughs) people that, you know, um, we all stuck through it. Um, but then they, they just started, uh, to not be as interested in chess or, you know, become, maybe they were just doing other things or better at other things or whatever it was. So I, I felt like I was the only one left, Um, and there were just a lot of, uh, difficult situations that I felt very uncomfortable in and had very little support, uh, you know, outside of my, my parents. But, um, yeah, I mean, as you know, like women tend to field a lot of, um, uh, derogatory comments and, uh, sexism and, um, looks even that you can't really do anything about, right. Because they're just looks. Um, certain things and that organizers have no clue are going on behind the scenes and that as a single individual, it's very difficult to come forward and say anything about. So, yeah, I just felt very uncomfortable at certain points and just could not really continue on. Um, so yeah, I'm very, I'm very fortunate that I started working, I uh, started teaching with my old coach, Ken Larson, um, when I was like 17, 18 and working with him at my elementary school. And I just thought it was so, so much fun working with little kids. Um, 
that when I moved to New York, when I was 19, I got that job at Chess in the Schools. I was like, okay, now's the time to get back into it. And there was an enormous support group, obviously, and, and more women and that sort of thing. So it was, it was easier to kind of get back into it. That's a very interesting story. And so you're really, you're picking out two things there that are so important, the lack of community, which we Mm -hmm. really try to address at U.S. Chess Women with these girls club rooms at our events and like by giving grants to programs across the country who are promoting girls in chess, our online events, you know, you really need to build a community so that when the girls become teenagers, they have friends. And I really like a lot of the teens are starting their own groups. That's really cool. Um, Wow. There's one like there's a lot unruly queens, <laughs> the chess queens united. Oh, um, there's nice. a lot of groups around the country who are trying to do that, which is really exciting to me. And then of course there's the more nefarious aspect of abuse and harassment, which you know has to be further addressed. I mean, at U.S. Chess a few years ago we implemented these safe play policies. So if there's abuse at a chess U.S. Chess tournament, you you're gonna you know send an email to abuse at uschess.org or fill out a form on mm-hmm. the US Chess website. I mean, that's not certainly not going to solve all the problems, but it does uh, at least give people a place to go if they're experiencing right. that abuse at one of our events. Right. And and if there's that you know element, it's like you're able to be anonymous. You don't have to go in front of a crowd full of people and you know tell on somebody. That's, that's almost impossible to do. I, I recently played in a blitz a sort of a casual blitz event, which was a lot of fun, um, mostly because it was casual and I haven't, <laughs> I haven't practiced, you know, so it was fun for it just, just be, it was at a, uh, like a coffee shop bar kind of thing. Um, and it was a double elimination and it, it started out with there being a few women. Um, and then I was the only one that was, um, in the later rounds that was still playing. And so we drew quite a crowd of people and it was really phenomenal to just sort of show off in that way. Like, look, a a woman can actually perform well or whatever. But at the same time, there was still that, um, there was still like the same sort of, and I have to say it was like the older generation that was still harassing me. Um, and the younger generation seemed to be, they just seemed to be more accepting, I think in general of, um, of, of, I don't know, maybe not just of women, but just of like different genders being able to do different things, you know? So I do think there is a a paradigm shift that this generation, the younger generation, younger, even than my generation, I'm just saying like, you know, the 20, 30, 15, 20, 30 year old people, they, they seem to be a little more accepting of the fact that, you know, women can play speed chess or whatever. Oh, I totally know what you mean. It's this genese qua that I guess the younger generations are starting to grasp where it's like you can celebrate people that are doing fantastically that don't look like you Mm -hmm. without making them feel uncomfortable. And obviously there are people of all ages that can do that. I I don't want to be ageist, but I'm just saying that it it does seem that there's a bit of a shift there. And and that can be a tricky balance for people because one thing I hear from some women and gender minorities in chess is that well-meaning people make them feel uncomfortable. Because mm. it's like they go to a tournament and just somebody is like, hi, 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 how right. are you? Too you know, much. Like, yeah. <laughs> and each individual person is just trying to be welcoming, but like sure. all together, it's overwhelming, especially if you're the type of person who's playing chess. Like you might right. be an introvert, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's already overstimulating. Yeah. So I think that's like, that's the kind of thing where it's like maybe people starting to just like understand a little bit more, like how to like, you know, if you do want to, 
how to just do better, do mm-hmm. a better job of welcoming people without making them feel uncomfortable. It's like social mores, right? Like sometimes yeah. like, we have the same discussion of poker all the time and they're like, but what do you mean, Jen? Like, I can't ever like flirt with a woman at the poker table. It's like, no, I never said that. <laughs> I said that like 98% of the time, it's probably not appropriate. You you find that 2%, you know, you, you sh- you're sure. human. You should be able to figure sure. that out for yourself. <laughs> Right. But it does make me a little bit more hopeful because it was like a pretty clear distinction at this particular, and this is just one event, you know, in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, which I have to say is definitely part of the South, even though it's had a lot of influx of people from all over the United States, um, still part of the South, but the, the, um, the younger people definitely were more, were more accepting. It was just like high fives all around, you know, and it was, it was really a nice feeling. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And you won the game. Oh, I got second. So I'm really okay. annoyed. <laughs> yeah. So I actually ended up um, in my last round, I drew. Um, so I was undefeated. And then I drew against this person who was really good. And well, what was really funny about the game was like, I was down three pawns and I was going to lose on time. Like I was going to lose on time, but I had a better, my king was in a better position. And so anyway, I was asking, I, ta- I had a, a pawn or I had some pawns. I don't remember. And he had three pawns. No, he had four pawns and I had one pawn. Okay. So I was like, okay, I'm going to make this a draw. And I just kept going draw, (laughs) even though it was probably annoying. But he was like, he looked at my clock and was like, no, absolutely not. So I said, okay. So I stood up and pushed my sleeves up and played like, you know, I had 10 seconds left on my clock and I just captured all of his pawns. And then of course, I'm the only one that can actually win. And so then I like yelled draw (laughs) as my flag fell. Ah. Like it took his pawn. It was like one of those moments that was like, you know, perfect, perfect timing. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, she lost, she lost. And I was like, nope that's a draw. And I had this great moment of like, you know, being able to, to claim what I was hoping for the whole time. And, and my opponent was good about, it. you know, he was like, Oh, okay. Draw. <laughs> but anyway, and then, then we had to play again because they wouldn't let us tie for first. And the next game I played, they made us play, um, with only three minutes on the clock. And I, yeah, I just, we had an even end game and I totally lost on time. So not fast enough. <laughs> But it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Definitely playing live chess does have that mm-hmm. special feel to it. I think it's like kind of combination that live chess is so much fun. It's so tactile. But then mm-hmm. we can all like train online, which makes it easier for everyone to succeed. So it's got it's definitely got chess got that great space, I think, um, which straddles both worlds. Yeah. Even being able to watch chess online during the pandemic, I think a lot of people we're, you know, getting involved in playing chess, but also being involved in just watching all of the, you know, Meltwater Champions chess tour and all of that, you know, with the commentary and everything being so accessible to such a large number of people while we're sitting here at home anyway. I, I think, yeah, so we're playing online and, but I, I, you know, being an older person for myself, I think I always prefer playing in person. I take it more seriously, but I'm, I'm glad the possibility exists that it's easy to sort of transfer onto the online section. It's very absorbing. And I think that's something that a lot of people need, especially moms, you know, to like Mm -hmm. just forget all the multitasking and everything else and just lose yourself in the moment, which I think is also a good experience that we can get from writing. So that's why like Mm -hmm. chess and writing are those two early loves of mine. Um, Yeah. Well, I know you talk about flow in chess queens and I know you've talked about it before. We've talked about it, you know, over the years. Um, I think that is something that that is achievable in certain sports and certain activities can 
and for me, you know, in, in creativity. And so when you're involved in concentrating really hard <laughs> and calculating or whatever, you know, behind the chessboard, you can get in. And I think it's, you know, it's different from escapism. Some people are like, oh, you read fiction to escape, but it's not really that. It's like actually more engrossed and more in-depth and more involved um, than leaving, right? It's more actually getting in tune with uh, with yourself. So I think that's that's something that that's really interesting to me. I read a lot of nonfiction, but I recently read a book uh, actually about uh, like a flow and the, oh, yeah? the way that we're uh, the uh, the attention economy is robbing us of our ability to concentrate. It was called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And he cites a bunch of studies that show um, fiction in particular, reading fiction, not, uh-huh. not nonfiction, which I generally really like, <laughs> um, that fiction in particular is really good for your um, ability to empathize. Yes, I totally agree with that. Yeah. And that made me want to read more fiction. Yeah. I was like, oh. <laughs> Yeah. People are like, why do you read? I read fiction, poetry, nonfiction, essays, memoirs. I like to read lots of things. But but when I read fiction, I, I really feel like it's it's a way of understanding another person's culture and another person's perspective and another person's, you know, just completely different background from yourself. And definitely that's how people should empathize. Like that's how to empathize. Yeah, definitely. I think fiction is a way to create social social beings for sure. Are chess books fiction or nonfiction? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, this is a trick question. I think they're nonfiction. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think you're right. But, you know, each chess game is kind of like a story. <laughs> I, re- I don't know. I mean, as far as like, there's no such thing as objectivity. I think that everything's subjective. You know, the game selection that we've picked or the things that we choose to talk about in the game are from our own perspectives. Then it's definitely got the spice of the author in it. But, but, uh. But the game actually happened, so it's probably nonfiction. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. You got to make up the game for it to be fiction. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. Good point. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. But you could make up games. The variations yeah. are kind of made up, right? They are. Well, wait, what about Anastasia's Mate? Wasn't that from a book? Anastasia's Mate, huh? That, that is yeah. the one where, with, with like the rook on H5, right? And the and the knight on E7. Yeah. And a pawn on G7. And then that's the Anastasia's Mate. <laughs> Isn't that from a book? Like an actual character created that checkmate in a book i think oh cool yeah i think i think uh that that rings familiar but i have to look that up and put in the show notes yeah that's, that's a good example though so you're also releasing a book on chess openings what is your favorite opening oh sure well i i don't think you'd be too surprised to know that it's the sicilian for black um <laughs> and the english for white because um i mean i've just always I haven't played a tournament game. I have to, I have the caveat is I haven't played a tournament game since my son was born, since I was pregnant. So 10, 10 years since I've played a, a real, you know, professional tournament game, but I, I always played C4 because I sort of, <laughs> I've always been a positional player and I sort of like maniacally enjoyed the, the huge sigh of like annoyance. My opponents would heave <laughs> when I played C4. Um, so I love the English. And, but recently, like online, I'll play the Italian because it's the opening I teach my kids. So, um, so I have to know a little bit about what I'm talking about uh, and they're totally different. Um, but for black, yeah, I play C5 or Queen's Gambit decline if I, if I have to play against D4 and 
But I try to make it like a tarash at some point, you know, throwing a seapon in there. You played in this uh, this blitz tournament, so I feel like that counts, even though it's not like so, a classical game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got out of book immediately because I just played tactical chess. Like I just sacked pawns and opened lines and just played tactics because I think, you know, because in blitz chess, I didn't want to sit there forever and think about a plan. or <laughs> So I just made it more exciting that way. But um I noticed, Jen, nobody's playing the dragon anymore, which is sad. That was like my go-to for so many years. So I started teaching the Nidor. But yeah, what happened to the dragon? Is that is that no longer like... Yeah, I guess it's like kind of easy to prepare against. Maybe uh-huh. that's why. But I, I do think... I do have a suggestion. I think yeah. that, uh, Irina Crush's opening, you know, her favorite Sicilian from back in the day is was, was, was pretty good to teach kids. The classical, the two knights. The, yeah, okay. The, just the one with the knight C, the early knight C6 because... I think that the night or if it's always a little tricky to explain to people why you're moving a pawn, move <laughs> another <true>. pawn <laughs> that doesn't develop a piece. No, I know it's true. It's true. And sometimes yeah. you then you move another pawn and another right. pawn and you still don't <laughs> develop any pieces. It's like it's hard for like, right. that to like a new player. Right, right. Oh, I just taught the the um Irina Crush and Alice Lee game that they played in the American Cup. And um, poor Alice Lee, like she's an awesome player, but she just made all these pawn moves in the opening. And so my students were like, what is she, what is she doing? Like all those pawn moves. <laughs> she didn't develop a piece to like move seven, you know. But um, but yeah, Irina Crush, phenomenal. I, I love, I love her game. So yeah, great suggestion. Yeah, and you do have to deal with some difficult things with that opening, like the Richter Rouser. But mm. th- but the thing is, not everybody's gonna play the Richter Rouser, especially at at a more intermediate level. So the kids, you know, might just get like an improved version of the dragon or something like oh, that. Oh yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. No, then, and they never get an, like whatever it is that I'm showing, they'll, they'll, it'll never actually happen, you know, for like years. <laughs> they're just, exactly. They're getting an introduction, but their opponents are like never going to play exactly what I'm like showing them that might happen, you know? But um, yeah, I, I tend to just do the principles and like the, leave a lot of the theory for, my adult students are more advanced students, but it's more just like CDC center developed castle. And then, you know, whatever happens, happens. Oh, CDC. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's how I teach it to my kids. Like just CDC guys. Center that was before castle. the pandemic when it became like, when everyone was like, Oh, I know what the CDC is. <laughs> I was like, yeah, right. Not that one. <laughs> but then they didn't castle and you're like, yeah. oh. <laughs> Come on, you got a castle. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, the opening book was fun for me because it's not really my forte. Like as much as I, you know, I'm into positional play and strategy. And that was a lot of like that that research was was sort of easier for me. And the opening research that was more difficult because I like I say, I'm pretty specific in the openings that I have had experience with. So looking up some of that stuff, like the Benoni, I was like, oh my gosh, Benoni, you know, like stuff I never encounter. So it was a lot of um learning for me too, writing writing the uh, openings book. Oh yeah. That sounds like so much fun. I mean, I think people really yeah. love just to learn a little bit, scratch the surface of opening. Right. I think that's so important because you want that bit, little introduction and then you can kind of decide what you, what you like exactly. rather than kind of get stuck with something that your coach mm-hmm. likes. And then like <laughs> right. five, 10 years later, you, you realize, yeah. Right. Yeah. I know. I think my coach first taught me like the Pierce when I was little. And, and then I was like, well, and I played it. And then, and then when I was older, I was like, I don't even know why I did this. This is not my style. That was a lot of fun research. And, and I love being able to learn, you know, while I'm 
while I'm being able to write a book as well. Like they're both excellent um, for me. And, and the book is definitely an introduction. I mean, it goes up to maybe move seven or maybe eight or nine in some of the lines, but it's just an introduction, you know, up to maybe when, when both sides are castled, you know? So, and then there's some ideas, like it'll give a plan for white and black, um, what to do next, what some of the ideas are, but I didn't want to get too deep into it because obviously you can go crazy with that stuff, but it's just supposed to be like, you're saying like an introduction, you kind of look at play through all of them. Right. And then get a feel for what your style might be, what you're more attracted to, and then just play and study more of that. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. I mean, I, gosh, you know, my opening repertoire when I was, when I was a kid, I started out with double King pond, but the moment I saw the Sicilian, it was like, love at first sight. <laughs> yeah. Right. But it was a little harder for me with some of my openings. And I do wish that I felt like I had that kind of like brief introduction to everything mm-hmm. before making a choice. Like exactly. just visit all of the different possible openings and then choose. Right. That, that's a really, that's a really cool way to think about it. But yeah, definitely visiting because I think some people get so excited about openings, but their rating is like not even over a thousand or anything yet. And it's like, just don't get too overwhelmed with that sort of thing. I know that's a discussion for another day, but but just the just to introduce you know introduce yourself to the openings you don't have to go all crazy about it there's so much more about chess to learn you know absolutely and it's all about like what you like some people right. love openings and like that enriches their understanding True. of the game but for some people it's like they really need to focus on other things to develop their their passion for chess but Jessica I mean you've been amazing on this podcast and thank I mean you. thank you thank you for taking the time to join me I know it's a pretty busy time with two books coming out back back. In <laughs> yeah. May and June. Thank you so much. Chess strategy for beginners in May, right now, basically. Mm-hmm. And chess openings for beginners coming out in June. And we can find all the different ways to buy those on your website at overtheboardchess.com. Is there any other websites or places to follow you um, so that we can keep um, abreast of all your activities? Oh, yeah. I, so it's overthechessboard.com is, uh, is my website. Um, and then I'm at, uh, Jess era Martin on Twitter. I'm not super active on social media, but you can also find me on, um, the Amazon author. I'm on Amazon as Jessica. I think it's just, is it Jessica Martin or Jessica era Martin? Whatever I I sent you. Jessica E. Martin. Jessica E. Martin. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Just to make it complicated. And then you can see all the other books. What was really cool is the, the book that I first wrote, um, learn to play chess has been translated into German. That was really exciting. So you can find me there as well. So over the chessboard and on Amazon. That's a really good feeling for an author, right? I just I got, I just <laughs> got news. We sold chess queens to guess what language? Uh, Swahili. No, no okay. that would be awesome. Because, Romanian. Yeah, I, got, I got, oh, that's really close. You're getting, you're getting really close. Polish. Oh, Paula. <laughs> that's awesome. Fantastic. Because I asked you to guess. You knew it probably wasn't Spanish, German, or French. <laughs> You you, you did some really good deductions, gal. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. I loved reading your book, Chess Queens. And um, I have it on pre-order. The hardcover is not coming out until June for you. So um, so that's on pre-order. But um, thank you so much for for having me on, Jen. It was really a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Jessica Martin, for Over the Chessboard. You find her everywhere, Amazon, her website. Thank you so much for joining me on Ladies Night. If you like what we're doing at US Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate confidence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our US Chess Women programs is always appreciated. 
and tax deductible. The U.S. Chess Suite of Podcasts, including Ladies Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. Chess Podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be ladies' night. Now according to Sockfish, I got it all wrong. After slightly advantage, I had nothing but my dear Capablanco, you tell me.